Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams, and I'm here with my co-host, Joe. I'm Joe Redfern, Global Brand Director, and today we are talking about the recent Netflix earnings call with Brandon Katz and Emily Horgan. Great. So I am Brandon Katz. I have spent, you know, eight plus years covering kind of pop culture in the media with a specific focus on the business and industry of Hollywood, the X's and O's and strategies behind all the great content we see. So uh, I am someone who has kind of drilled into earnings reports and subscriber numbers and all of that very granular nerdy stuff like we were talking about before we hit the record button. So I am very excited to join you guys and have a great discussion about all the things that are going on with Netflix right now, which is a lot. And Emily. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, my name is Emily Horgan. I am a kids media consultant um, with a focus on streaming. And I just launched a, news, a new newsletter on LinkedIn, the Kids Streamer Sphere. Um, where we talk about everything to do with kids and streaming. So um, if I could say kids and streaming anymore in relation to <laughs> what I do or or who I am, uh, I don't think it's possible. So that, that's, that's what I look at. Great. Well, we are thrilled that you could join us uh, on this episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. And obviously, uh, everything that we talk about on this podcast is through the lens of kid, kids content and kids media. But given that the Netflix uh, news around the earnings call this week has been so all pervasive, I guess we can we can start with one really big, broad question on everybody's lips. And that was, why did they really think that the sky was the limit in terms of subscriber numbers and that it could just keep on growing? Have you got any views on that? Should I jump in on this one? Go for it. Okay. Yeah, I have some views as well. <laughs> so, uh, well, obviously we've seen over the last five or so years, pretty much every single legacy entertainment media company reorient itself around streaming. And that was because Wall Street continued to give Netflix the longest leash in the game. And their stock price was trading at such a significant multiple because we thought the total addressable market of streaming would be in the billions. You know, there were several forecasts as recently as 2021 that projected 1.25 billion worldwide subscription, video on demand subscriptions by 2024, let alone, you know, 2030 and, and, and beyond. So we thought in the kind of general sense of both Wall Street and a lot of media analysts that the pie would just continue to grow and grow and grow. And frankly, there'd be enough subscribers for pretty much everyone, at least for a short period of time. What we are now realizing is that the domestic market, at least here, United States, Canada, is pretty much well-saturated with a ceiling of about 75 million subscri paid subscribers. And that worldwide, even while there is a lot of growth opportunity in overseas regions, we're seeing that the uh, local language kind of uh, content doesn't usually travel super well globally. You know, Squid Game is awesome, but it's the exception, not the rule. So we are seeing our sky-high expectations crash down and collide with the actual business reality. And that growth is still available, but it's going to be a lot slower moving forward than we initially projected. That's the end of my rant to begin with. <laughs> I'm going to pick up the baton on that run because I actually completely agree with Brandon in that a lot of this narrative around growth, growth, growth and growth for growth's sake 
um, was based around the Wall Street leash, right? So that's where the headlines are coming from. That's where the outrage is coming from. You know, it's not necessarily something that, you know, people who have experience within within selling media services, channels, um, streaming services, VOD services, you know, we're necessarily thinking that this could just go on forever. There was always going to be a point where it started to soften. I think one of the reasons, though, that it's it's kind of quite shocking in the moment is because Netflix had this massive surge through COVID that just seemed to be like flying in the face of anything anybody could have deemed possible. And mm -hmm. so the drop to earth from that high, I think is very, very profound. And that's why I think people are kind of caught off guard by it and didn't see it coming. And honestly, they didn't even see it coming, which I think you can see in the, the comments around their earnings. They were trying to, you know, and to be fair, they were trying to interpret, you know, a market across the pandemic that nobody had, like, you know, could ha have any experience or, every, you know, every single thing that everybody was doing across that time period was guesswork. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's fair, it's fair that they didn't, they, this is a surprise somewhat to them, I suppose, but you'd hope their data was giving them some signals, but yeah. That's interesting because my, my feeling is uh, I kind of completely agree with all of the, uh, of everything you've said, but my, my feeling is that Netflix failed to um, to adequate, adequately manage expectations. That it was it should have been obvious to everyone that during an unprecedented pandemic where everyone is locked at home and can't get out, that this will give an enormous boost to streaming platforms um, because people are just hungry for content. And that I read some, an interesting analysis by the marketeer Mark Ritson that basically did a graph where he demonstrated that barring the COVID, barring the bump that they received from COVID, that actually Netflix subscriptions are on track with the pre-COVID growth rates before the pandemic. So it feels like that's the, I think there's, a, there's an element where we might be kind of over-interpreting the fact, the data, because we're seeing everything through the filter of kind of the unprecedented boost that the pandemic gave those numbers. You're keeping those graphs yourself, Andy? I can share them actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I may, maybe not on the screen here, but I can. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll post a link to the um, to the article by Mark Ritson, but it's interesting. It, uh, the it just shows that there's a big boost during the pandemic to those numbers, and that maybe and you can totally understand from Netflix's point of view that they're there to sell growth, and the pandemic gave them that opportunity. But then the headache comes when when the restrictions lift and there's some kind of return to normal and that's and that's reflected in a drop in subscribers it maybe maybe that's just you know it lies damn lies and statistics isn't it you know you will find whatever story you want out of statistics and in a growth period then it's great um even if to everybody else it's common sense that at the end of a pandemic and kids go back to school and people go back to work viewing is going to drop off again statistics as statistics and subscriber loss for the first time in 10 years gives people in boardrooms who have got banks of financial analysts the heebie-jeebies um in terms of um kind of kids content just to to bring it back to that you know obviously what a boon that enjoyed when kids were at home uh, and not at, at school uh, and and really was um, kind of a, a heyday for new commissions for kids content animation has enjoyed a real boom what do you think the impact will be now given that there's this um kind of 
there's various people and various articles saying that actually now Netflix animation is coming out of the other side of that. Do you think that that content spending spree on kids content is over? I I would be convinced that it isn't. But I, so, you know, the earnings alongside the earnings, there was two articles that dropped in the last month. One about Netflix kids animation and one from um, an interview with Rachel Shukart, who was the uh, showrunner on Babysitters Club, about issues within the commissioning uh, structure or the commissioning process at Netflix when it comes to kids content. Um, I think I think there's a lot to unpack with this. I think Netflix, and you can kind of see this um, ethos of theirs across a few different areas, not just kids. So, for example. They do. They they drop in. They drop in one batch. They 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 have constantly shied away from weekly drops. That's like their thing. It's nearly like their signature, their sig their signature USP. And there's a lot of narrative now about whether they'll change on that. Um, they've loved to push the boundaries. They 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 love to own and again signature USP own international content that they they've commissioned international content that's done brilliantly. Lupin and obviously Squid Game and loads of other titles. And, and that's another signature thing that they're, they're really trying to sell like this is a thing. On kids, maybe the maybe the overt statement wasn't as clear or it wasn't as clear, it wasn't as over the top, but I definitely see trends in their kids commissioning up till now where they really wanted to push the boundaries on the, 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 the medium of animation, number one, and number two, on the types of stories that, that are being told for kids. And I, 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 uh, I admire that. I think that's good. Um, I, I, I appreciate everything that, that that comes with that. And I think there was a lots of shows that were quite groundbreaking, lots of shows that were quite like very edgy, different animation styles. Um, I know they definitely gave um, a shot to creators who maybe wouldn't have gotten a, a, a shot that quickly, um, that early. Um, but I think the issue for them on this is that, you know, they're they're in this they're in this uh, evolution from trying to be the place of everybody's favorite show as opposed to being the place where everybody the place of shows that everybody wants to watch those are two different things and i think those niche commissions that they've done haven't really paved the way in terms of viewer engagement um and there's other reasons behind that it's not to say that they're bad shows i think i think the algorithmic you know the algorithmic algorithmic curation um obsession and again that's another very signature usp of theirs it's all algorithm curated nobody's touching your for you know not your for you page that's tiktok but nobody's touching your, your your netflix standing page it's completely done by computers you know that's again something they really really cleave to as like one of the pillars of like what makes them different but i i'm not sure that algorithmic curation is gonna really help like quite a niche show find quite a, like it's niche little audience i think yeah. that's gonna be quite a tricky thing to do um I think what you what we do see and what we see in data is that it helps the big shows hit hard, um, and we all know in kids that the big shows, when when they hit big, they do hit hard um, for days and days and months and months and weeks and weeks and years and years. If you're a parent, it's the same show every day. <laughs> Been there, but um, you know. So I think they they still. I think that I think they need to do a little bit of a pivot if they want to drive engagement. They need to pivot maybe what their strategy has been so far, um, but it's whether they're willing to eat the humble pie and do that, which. You know, they have these kind of signature USPs that they they cleave quite um, strongly to. That that's really interesting. I mean, I I, I think I'm a bit um, stupid on this because I'm I was trying to work out what the difference is in terms of strategy behind if you want to be the place for somebody's favourite show 
as to be in the place where kind of you get the most viewers. Um, yeah. What, what, the, the how, do you, how do you see the kind of the, the different strategies of kind of each approach? Because I'm not the clear key on thing that. Is, the key thing is it's not of, of, of people's favourite show, it's of everybody's favourite show. And, they, and that's not just for, for them on kids, it's for them across everything, right? It's like, if you are not into, if you're a kid and you're like into science and you're really not into Paw Patrol or you're not into whatever, they want to have a little science show over here for you. And if, you know, and, and the same goes on like all the other genres. If you are not into movies, you're not into drama and you like documentaries, they'll have something there for you. And if you really like, you know, have like some weird obsession with like mountaineering, like I do, um, and you get really into those kind of shows that nobody else is into, well, although 14 Peaks is huge, you know, like they have these little niches of like, that, that like everybody's favorite show, not just, the fav not not just people's favorite show or, or lots of people's favorite show, everybody's favorite show, and that's where they try to fill all the little niches and the little nooks and crannies. And I think I think that's I think there's challenges with that. There's challenge, challenges with that in terms of um, you know the commercials and whether they stack up. And there's challenges with that in terms of algorithmic curation and, and letting those shows find an audience. And you know, so I think I think the the budgets will remain, but I think they're really asking questions about you know, what is giving them bang for their book. And you'll see, sorry, I'm ran, like I'm on the rant here now, Brandon, but you'll see, you know, people, you know, City of Ghosts, Elizabeth Ito, you know, she's like, she, she's been vocal on Twitter about her experience. Um, but the big, the big commercial showrunners at, at Netflix right now, so Chris Nee has come out saying she's there, still open for business. Um, Obviously, Jorge Gutierrez has come out saying he's open for business. He they had a big hit there with Maya and the three, and and um, Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro is um, is still yeah. saying he's open for business there. So the big commercial, kind of commercially minded or commercial, you know, people who have a commercial track record in producing kids content that that hits are all still there. It's the smaller ones that are having yeah. the, the harder time. Yeah, I can see that, and that's maybe why people are panicking that. They're just going to want Boss Baby, the series. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, that, that's kind of that's really well explained. So, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, Brandon, is that anything that you've noted over your analysis of Netflix in general, or or, or the kids uh, area in particular, whether the edges are being smoothed off this risk-taking culture that they used to have with content? It's so funny because Netflix came into the game as the great disruptor, the company that innovated every level of entertainment production, distribution, and consumption. And now they are pivoting towards more traditional, more standard entertainment strategies. So it is very much the rebellious teen growing into their worst fear, becoming their parents. <laughs> And it's so funny to witness what was once this kind of maverick company with a very seriously dedicated resource allocation to cutting edge dramas and really boundary pushing content. Now come back to more middle of the road. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's essentially, do they want to be HBO or CBS? I, I think we've seen the answers more towards the latter. They want to be a, a broad appeal hitter, but the problem with being a one-stop shop, like Emily said, where you have something literally for everyone, being the Walmart of streaming is that you are going to end up with an endless volume of disposable overlooked content that just never gets picked up by anybody. And so you're really looking at a kind of growing puddle of 
I don't want to say wasted money because I'm not trying to insult anyone who's working hard on these shows, but they are going to fall through the cracks and not get the viewership and promotion and positioning algorithmically that they deserve because there's simply too much content to serve. You're, you're not going to be able to effectively manage 140 new shows a year and about 100 movies a year. So I think they're going to have to kind of rein it in a little bit. Maybe I go back a little bit to the Cindy Holland way of doing things, even though she was a big spender at Netflix. It was a little bit more focused, a little bit more curated. And listen, as long as I get a new season of Dragon Prince, I'm good to go on the kids front. Great. I, I mean, that's that's a really interesting thing to explore, I think, there, because when Netflix first arrived, I think there was an element where people thought it was going to be the Amazon of streamed video content. And now that you've got competitors like Disney Plus and um, Apple and Amazon, it it almost feels like they can't just be that broad um, shop for kind of video content. They almost need to have more of a distinctive position in the market, particularly in kids. And I just wondered, do you think do you think they're gonna? This is gonna force them to look at trying to define what their offer is for kids in a way that they haven't had to before. I think they're going to do that across the board. They're going to nail down more specific brand identity for each of their major uh, uh, demographic offerings. Now, in a sense, Netflix's brand identity for several years now has been that Walmart one-stop shop endless buffet. And I think that that's not necessarily going to change. But we look around the streaming uh, battlefield and there's just more clearly identifiable umbrellas of content. You know, Amazon's really hammering the type of kind of new age serialized procedurals that people, you know, middle of the road kind of content that people really like. There's nothing wrong with that. Reacher, Jack Ryan. Lots of different cop and, and lawyer shows. Uh, you look at Disney, obviously they are powered first and foremost by their blockbuster war chest of franchise IP. You look at Apple TV+, Plus, which is clearly trying to be the HBO of streaming. Now, Netflix is, doesn't necessarily need to hammer out something as clear because, they're, again, they're going to still want to embrace that we have something for everyone. But I think their individual fiefdoms, whether it's blockbuster movies, kids' content, drama, sci-fi, I think they do want to etch out a little bit more clarity in what kind of projects within those fiefdoms are, quote unquote, Netflix projects. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Brandon. Actually, it's like they need to try, they do need to try to define who they are, but one of their key um, their key advantages and their and definitely when it comes to kids content is their their interest in 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 looking at what's out there and, and and picking apples off the tree, you know, and that actually is something I think we've seen pivot with them a little bit. I talk about, you know, those signature USBs, something that they've definitely mellowed on a bit and we're seeing mellowing on in various areas is this question of exclusivity. At one stage, Netflix are obsessed with exclusivity and it had to be exclusive to Netflix and anything that was exclusive to Netflix, they whacked a to do Netflix original logo on, uh, you know, I'm not sure all of that was necessarily, you know, super clear to various producers etc but you know i think definitely on kids they're seeing that they're seeing the power of of being able to like as i said pick the apples off the tree other people might have the apples that's fine but they'll have coco melon they'll have miraculous they'll have pj masks and the one thing that will continue in the world of kids is that you know there will be these commissions that are done that aren't specifically disney you know like they aren't mm. wholly disney owned there's always going to be these copros that are happening um from people specifically like E1, um, where they're looking to kind of sell, to sell them around, and Netflix will be happy to take you know the first season, 
you know, four or five years later. But if it's an established mm-hmm. franchise, great. I mean, you see that again on Cocomel, you're talking about the disruption of kids content. Like they're happy to take that because that is one of the biggest titles for preschoolers right now. It's Coco Mel's so, world. We're just living in it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but but that's you, interesting because it doesn't give them, because it's an enormous hit, while at the same time, it's very different from kind of Netflix originals. It doesn't feel mm. like that's their brand. So um, I, I that's, was, it, that's where it's very different from Disney Plus as well. Yeah, and, and I was actually just going to say something very similar in terms of, do you think there is space on Netflix, given this identity crisis, I guess it's it's going through, you know, for Coco Melon alongside uh, Maya and the Three? I think, I think there is. I think, you know, you need, for me, it's like the algorithm, again, the, the commitment to this algorithm curation, I think I, I find confusing, okay? Because... What they should be doing and what anyone else in a, in a network before, even in the world, in the good old world of linear would be doing would be like, okay, great. We've, we've got Cocomel. We know it's huge. Um, uh, I, 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 I would imagine it's a pretty efficiently priced deal because I know Cocomel is everywhere and I'm, and I'm sure that, you know, they're not going everywhere if they're charging, you know, out through the nose or can they because they're all over YouTube anyway for free. So it's about trying to use use Cocomelon to, to shine the spotlight on their own stuff. And if all you're, all you're depending on there is the algorithm, then I'm not like, you're kind of losing some of that value of having that biggest hit because yes, people are coming to watch the biggest hit, but you're not using it to kind of drive the consumer journey into stuff that you want them to find. Um, and I also think, you know, I, I, I bang on about this a lot. I think discovery on VOD services, these OTT VOD services is super young, like discovery strategies, discovery approaches, how it's like how it's managed, how, like what works, what doesn't work. I think it's super young. And like, even though Netflix have been doing it for like whatever it is, like 13 or 15 years at this stage, like I still don't think they figured it out. And this like over commitment to the algorithm, I think is probably hurting them. Um, I mean, in a perfect world, it's just the, the example of preschool, the preschool streaming franchise unicorn that I see emerging right now is Gabby's Dollhouse. I know it's a DreamWorks show, but it is a Netflix original bespoke to Netflix. So what they should be doing is trying to use Cocomel as a vehicle to drive into shows like Gabby. Maybe they did with Gabby because we see that Gabby is popping. But there's lots of other preschool shows that launched last year that I don't necessarily see jumping, jumping out of, you know, jumping out of the kind of attention, the, the, like the attention spectrum for kids. Shows like Ridley Jones, um, Action Pack, you know, I, I don't see these jumping around. So I wonder you know, whether they're able to leverage. So there should be space for Cocomelon, but you need to use it for its entire value, not just the viewer engagement. It's yeah. also for that kind of, that, that user journey that there's you the can use to your own advantage. Yeah, because the danger is that Netflix is building a lot of equity into something that they don't own um, with some of those yeah. And that yeah, lack sure. of ownership in-house has been a big sore spot that for them for years. It's one of the many reasons why they've doubled down on original investments over the last three to five years, because they are terrified of losing any sort of uh, licensing deals and uh, programs like the Marvel Netflix series being reclaimed eventually, even though they're technically Netflix originals. Yep. Do you, um, we spoke about, well, obviously in their earnings call, they talk about an ad supported tier as well you know how do you think potentially because there's there's sensitivities and 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 regulations around what you can and can't advertise to kids how do you think an ad supported tier might affect their strategy in kids it's it's going to be really difficult because introducing an ad tier 
it includes a lot of obstacles, you know, ranging from the software necessary to relationships with advertisers to then tailoring appropriate advertising to uh, the kids' content. As Emily has pointed out in some great pieces she used to write, there was a big problem with uh, the filtering of what types of, of ads and messaging gets kind of through to the kids' audience. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see because Netflix can either build it internally, which is super expensive and time consuming, or they can outsource it, which is expensive and kind of goes against Netflix's desire to control 100% of the relationship with the consumer. But the goal is obviously to cast a wider net when attracting prospective new subscribers. And the idea is that the lower cost here will presumably increase Netflix's total addressable market, which they obviously need to, uh, you know, boost up after this low, slower uh, growth, growth, subscriber growth. And I, I kind of liken it to uh, a little bit like the McDonald's dollar menu. You know, it entices customers to buy slightly varied, slightly smaller versions of existing products at a lower price. So that's what I think Netflix's aim is. And if they can generate a, a new kind of consistent revenue stream at the same time, that's gravy on top for them. Yeah, that's yeah, great. It's part of them evolving into kind of reinventing TV. So uh, yeah. back back to the future for advertiser-funded TV. Exactly. And now analysts are calling for them to develop a sports strategy. So when you have sports and advertisements, oh, we're back on cable and broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I think the I think the ads here will probably when when we talk about kids, like yes, I Brandon said, right? They need to. They just figure out how they're going to do that because it's it's a hire and or it's a you know it's a like it's a relation it's a it's a agency relationship whatever. But it's 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 a big deal. It's not something you can just do. Um, and the the thing about it with kids, you know, I think it opens it'll it'll definitely open the door to more parents where you know, like at least Netflix is safer than YouTube. Like the majority of kids are watching content on YouTube and. Um, the ads there are, you know, messy and 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 there, there's definite issues depending on lots of things with with that with that there. So you would one would think, and um, I would assume that uh, any ad offering on Netflix is going to be a bit more organised for kids specifically than an offering on YouTube. Um, so I think it, it it gives parents the chance to sample and to try, you know, it's that kind of try before you buy kind of thing. And I think that will that will be important for them in these in these in international markets where you know streaming and SVOD is not as normalized because people need to need to have that kind of reason to just, as I said, try before you buy, see what it feels like. And then and, and ads being kind of that ad supported tier being essentially for the consumer free at the point of use, you know, it, suddenly you try it, you see it, suddenly it gets a bit more entrenched into your life. Your kids, your kids favorite show is on it. You know, they, they're watching and suddenly it gets a bit more important and it becomes a bit more of a, of a of a presence and and an ongoing thing that you need. So um, yeah, I think it's I think it's I think it's smart. But yeah, there's a lot of work to be done um, before they manage to deploy it. I'd say. I think my only my only concern around that is there's slightly more sensitivity around av advertising it for kids content. You know, it's one of the things in the UK about the BBC iPlayer that most parents reference is there's no ads cluttering up the kids' content. And the same goes for Netflix. So whereas I think more adults will be, you know, their potential to stand an ad-supported tier on Netflix for grown-up content is slightly higher than what they're willing to put up with for ads being put in front of their kids because Netflix was just so good in that they could give kids access to Netflix and know that they weren't being shoved, I mean, you know. Maybe there's a way to have a number of tiers. So you have a, like a, 
a, a tier that's an advertiser-funded tier for more adult content, and then the new ring fence, the children's content, potentially. Um, mm. I mean, the other thing that's kind of been that's popped up on the news a lot um, since the um, since the kind of the drop in the share price was about password sharing. I mean, should um, um, should ex-boyfriends and mother-in-laws um, be worried? <laughs> well, the thing is, you know what, for kids, though, grannies should be worried, right? So, like, that is one of the good things about Netflix is that you can go to any connected TV, plug in your credentials, and your kid can watch, and you can have, like, 10 minutes apiece. You know, like, so, like, ex-boyfriends and, 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 and ex-girlfriends, sisters, etc., for sure, but, like, grannies should definitely be worried. And also, you know, this kind of, like, holiday homes maybe should be you know, maybe should be worried because you know there's plenty of holiday homes these days that are equipped with smart tv you go down you plug in your credentials suddenly you've got you, you've got a nicer holiday on your hands because you can actually catch a break um so i i do think there is some considerations around that when it comes to when it comes to kids i mean the, the numbers are staggering like well they the netflix are they I think it's like a hundred thousand hundred hundred million, million subscribers worldwide so that's like yeah. an extra 30 percent well it would actually be ex yeah it's, it's that would be 30 percent um of, of what they currently have and like in, in total that's easy 30 percent of their user base is, is is using that way um i think in the uk and like i've seen other numbers come out to so the uk and the us the numbers look around 20 25 like around 25 to 30 so like that is it's a lot of folks you know um who who are who are coasting for free you know so um, but then, like, but I, I guess it must have been like side, a marketing strategy originally, though. It made sense, yeah. didn't it? Well, it I definitely totally helped. Agree, some marketing strategy yeah. originally. The leniency think, early on helped because it reinforced wow, Netflix content is great. It's attractive. It's quality. It entices me to eventually subscribe on my own and grow the pool of prospective customers while enhancing your kind of brand image and connection and brand loyalty with consumers. Now that so many markets are mature, yeah, they're they're losing out on hundreds of millions in potential revenue, which is why they're probably going to crack down, maybe introduce a higher price tier for password shares or just try to convert them. But, you know, you convert 10, 15, 20%, that is not insignificant, uh, you know, bottom line boost. Absolutely. Yeah. They I need mean, a, a granny upgrade. <laughs> a granny I tier. Granny's here. Yeah. <laughs> here, listen, I'd buy it. That one's for free, Netflix. The next idea you take from us, you got to pay us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I suppose one of the questions I had then was whether, what, we, what do you think Netflix should be looking to do to uh, moving forward in terms of, a shift in strategy that, that's a good question i so i think um i mean this is not a, a groundbreaking observation but i think the emphasis that netflix places on viewership within the first 28 days of release and the binge method in general for certain pieces of the content doesn't really allow organic growth or for a TV series to build an audience over time. And like we said before, Squid Game's kind of word of mouth spreading rise through the ranks and its gradual explosion was the exception for Netflix and not the rule. And I think as an extension of that, we know that it has a perception for being trigger happy when it comes to canceling shows. And I think Yes, canceling shows before it matures across multiple seasons is one way to avoid increasing budgets, but quickly canceling well-received series also plays into that perception that Netflix does have quality control issues. So I think a way to kind of meet in the middle a little bit 
is, you know, we've seen them to start to experiment with some sort of weekly batch releases for reality series. We've seen them split up uh, seasons of highly anticipated TV shows into two batches, such as Ozark's final season, such as Stranger Things 4 uh, upcoming. And I, I think they need to start to embrace that. I think they need to be uh, willing to renew solid series with, you know, affordable budgets, even if their first season viewership isn't great, because there is a chance that you can develop it into a grower. And I do think that we may reach a point in the future in which Netflix begins uh, maybe beyond just dropping seasons in two batches, but even dropping three episodes at a time to extend their runway of cultural relevancy and subscriber engagement. Now, that's not a cure-all. That's not a groundbreaking observation, like I said, but it is just one step forward in a way to optimize their current product. And just expanding on that, you that's know, great. just thinking as you were talking, you know, might this be an opportunity... Assuming that that obsession with the 28-day figures was a, a, a symptom of got to keep growing, got to keep growing. Now there's been this reset, or at least the pressure is off a little bit. Is this a chance for them to start looking at things slightly less knee-jerk and actually growing in the in the long term? So might we be, you know, re-recording this podcast in six months' time, saying <laughs> that was the pivotal moment? Absolutely. I mean, I think the funny thing is in mid 2020, after the two record quarter boosts of subscribers before this, obviously sky is falling scenario, everyone was saying, wow, Netflix has transitioned from the growth phase to now the profit phase. So now is the time to kind of not clamp down, but look for more long-term viable strategies. And I think this is one of them. It just so happens to now potentially come after a disaster scenario. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would, the, the bingeability factor, I think, is something like Brandon, you speaking to, uh, like on a broader level for content, but that is something that I, I worry about for kids. I think that's something, you know, when, and we, we, you know, these, these articles that were released in the last month that talk about, you know, cancelling and these are my 28 day numbers and blah, 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 blah. Like, although there's definitely, kids definitely do binge, like, it's more kind of like sitcom consumption is what you're kind of going for when you're talking about a hit when it, when it comes to series and nearly somewhat when it, when it comes to movies too, that like it's a beloved comfort TV item that's watched again and again and again and again over many, many months. Um, uh, and I think that's, that would be the concern with, with what they're doing um, in kids is that like the focus on like my entry, I thought was, was, was really, was really kick ass. Um, the limited series kind of, vibe of it kind of really lent itself to that bingeability model which is fine and like that's a great that's a great way of doing things but not every single time like we've seen on kids you know and in, in linear at least and, and on non-linear that like the hits are the ones that are just repeatable out the door all day long you know and and and, and that's where the real value of that investment comes in is when when you have something but sometimes that takes growing you know that takes a bit of growing i agree well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so uh, I wonder if it's. I mean, we just kind of touched on it, but if you were if you were in charge of Netflix, what would you do next? If you if Reed Hastings disappears and Brandon and Emily are put in charge, give us a quick summary. <laughs> what would you do next? Well, is this before or after I take my bonus on a worldwide vacation where I don't show up for work for a while? Uh, before that. <laughs> 
uh, I think our, our mutual friend, Emily, entertainment strategy guy, had a decent idea of looking at Roku as a potential acquisition. Now, massive uh, acquisitions are not necessarily Netflix's, you know, modus operandi outside of a few exceptions, but I think that immediately installs a, a proven track record in advertising. It gives them uh, linear live streaming capabilities, gives them a, a lot of e additional uh, uh, user data profiles and as well as a kind of infusion of new content. So I think it solves a lot of issues at this particular point of crisis. Yeah, I think Roku's a good shout. Um, the other thing I would say that I, and we've touched on a bit in this, is like changing to that weekly, you know, playing with those release schedules is something they could do tomorrow, right? They could just do it tomorrow. They don't have to buy anyone. They don't have to staff for anything. They don't have to build anything. They don't have to buy, you know, like, so <laughs> that for me feels like, like the obvious thing to start playing with. Although a lot of people don't believe that they're going to do it. And I do, you know, we've seen that in the past where they cleave to this kind of, these kind of rocks that they may or may not perish on. Um, and so maybe that's not something that they, that they would do, but that is definitely something I would be playing with, but I'm a programmer, right? So that's like, just my, that's like my safe space to play. But we're still doing the fictional vacation, correct? I, yeah, that's all that, I care yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, we're buying Roku, we're doing weekly drops, and me and Brandon are going to Barbados. There we go. That's a um, brilliant point at which to end. And just in case we uh, get thrown off sooner than expected, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. I think we should definitely revisit and see how for the Netflix fares over the next few months and see if uh, we'd made any good calls during this podcast record. Absolutely. Yeah, that was great. Thanks, guys. Great. Thanks Thank so much you. for having us. Really appreciate Thanks. it. Nice to see you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate this episode and subscribe to the series. It would be enormously appreciated. And thank you very much for listening. We really hope that you tune into the next episode. Bye.